Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Canada Detroit Center. Our host is Dr. Adam Walker, co-founder and vice president for research at the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. The NY Deterrence Center is a 501c3 organization ensuring a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrence and its ongoing modernization. Thank you for listening and welcome to the show. The views of the host and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another great episode of NucleCast. Of course, as every episode, I am Adam Wilder. And today we have with us Major General Retired Brad Garricky, who his last assignment was the Chief Strategist for the U.S. Army. And I thought we would have General Garricky back on the show. He's been on once before. We talked about the Army's role uh, in nuclear, the nuclear enterprise and should the Army... Uh, have nuclear weapons. So if you didn't hear that episode, make sure to go back and find it and listen to it because it was a great episode. So today, however, we are going to talk about a pertinent topic, of course, that is the war in Ukraine. And, you know, it's been, you know, it's been on for a while now and we'll hit two years before too long. And as we do that, I wanted to talk to you about where we are in this conflict that's lasted, you know, close to what, 20 months now and what you think of it. And I just had a bunch of questions and I figured you better than most could answer those questions for me. So welcome back to NucleCast. Thank you, Adam. It's a pleasure to be here. Good morning and, uh, and Merry Christmas to you and the team. Yeah. Same to you. Same to you. Uh, I don't know. I was reading, last night that we're in a El Nino season. And so I don't know about uh, Nashville, but here in Kansas City, it's been unseasonably warm. So I don't think we're going to have a white Christmas this year, although we are having rain. But uh, I'm sure it's probably warm everywhere. Yes, here too. Yeah, it's been mild. So no sledding this year. Lots of time to think about uh, international affairs and uh, and national security. <laughs> So as you look at the the war in Ukraine now, uh, I guess the first thing I would ask is, whenever it kicked off, what were your expectations of what would happen in those early days? And then now that we're almost two years on, uh, are you surprised at where we are? Or is it kind of what you thought? Or what was your take in, in looking back now? The months and weeks leading up to the invasion, uh, I was the G-35 of the Army. It was quite interesting. Uh, I came down on the side that once um, Putin and the, and the Russian forces had reached a certain mass, there was just so many so many units and different types of capabilities that he had arranged outside the Ukrainian border that it looked to me like it was far more than an exercise. And the conventional wisdom at the time was that this was just another show of force and that he was perhaps rehearsing, but he was not going to actually attack and, and uh, cross into Ukraine proper where um, the Ukrainian forces were arrayed or not arrayed, as the case turned out. Uh, and, that, and that consensus pretty much held. It held, uh, you know, there are always um, folks who are contrary, but in general, the intelligence I, I would characterize as lining up that way. Um, I called in, interestingly, um, I was in charge of Army staff talks at the time, so I had the privilege of working with I don't know, 10 or 12 foreign officers who were assigned 
to the to the Pentagon and worked very closely with us in the G three five seven, and we just had a meeting and had a little poll, and out of that dozen, I think one or two thought an invasion was likely, and ten of the think um, people could see it coming, but it was not the consensus opinion. And then once it happened, um, I did think that the Russians would make much more uh, of an advance. I did think they would be more successful. I did think the Ukrainians had not uh, arranged their forces with enough depth, and they did not have enough multi-domain capabilities to withstand uh, the Russian attack. So I was surprised at the vigorous defense that the Ukrainians were able to put up and how inept the Russian forces actually proved themselves to be. And so at, at this distance, uh, and really taking stock of what had happened in the earlier weeks, it became apparent to me that the missing ingredient, and is still the missing ingredient, is maneuver. Uh, the Russians are not able to do what we traditionally call in the American Army combined arms maneuver. And I'm surprised I don't hear, I don't really hear in the prognosticators and the, and the talking heads on all the different television stations and whatnot, I don't see that discussed. But to me, that is the signal feature of what has broken down here is the lack of maneuver. And it, and everybody, what everybody has done is kind of gone to the corners where they were the day before the war started. And everybody kind of sees what they want to see. You know, I don't know that I've seen a lot of evolution of thinking. Uh, and so those folks who were very concerned about Europe as a theater and are very concerned with the Russians as a military threat continue to, to feel that way. And those who feel that there are, there are other kinds of threats in the Middle East or especially in the Asia Pacific continue to see that threat in different vectors. So I don't know that anybody's minds have changed, but I do think that the outcome of the war has not gone the way it should have gone uh, according to our convictions and our investments uh, prior, to the, prior to the contest. We have spent, we, Western armies, the United States, have spent billions and billions and billions of dollars over years, over decades, right, to give forces all sorts of capabilities. And yet, the war in Ukraine, to me, looks like the Somme. It looks like the Western Front in World War I. That is the question we should be asking ourselves, is why is that the case? Why is that the case? So, if... George Meade is standing on Cemetery Ridge at the Battle of Gettysburg in 1863, and you've got a Ukrainian brigade commander or division commander standing on his ground. Who has the easier job? Who has more situational awareness? Who knows more about what is about to happen in his battle space in front of him? Who can maneuver better? And it, the answer should be the Ukrainian commander, right? It should be, yeah, we've given him every tool there is. But does the Ukrainian commander have the ability to maneuver? Can he or his Russian counterpart? Does the Russian and, and Ukrainian commander have an easier job than the Union commander or a commander in, in any period you know, prior to the present? And I would argue that not really. It is just as hard, if not harder, today. So are we taking a look at our range of our investments and how do we restore maneuver? If, if I am correct in my assessment, maneuver is the thing. So how are we going to restore maneuver? Because what we've been spending our money on isn't working. Yeah. And so what do you, as you think about this question, which is a solid question, what do you see as the solution? What have we learned from 
our experience in Ukraine? I, I, I don't know that we are learning that. See, I think that's where <laughs> I think we're observing. I think we're observing yeah. a lot. I don't think we're necessarily learning. Um, because I, when I ask this question, I just don't, I have, and I'm retired now, so I don't have any authority and I don't have all of the access to information and I'm not in all the councils. So I, I'm certainly cognizant of the fact that the army may be you know, rapidly moving out uh, along the lines of our conversation, but I haven't seen it yet. And so I'm going to speak from, from where my perspective is. And that is we are not having vigorous conversations about how we're going to maneuver in a multi-domain operation setting uh, in this war and wars that are to come. And we continue to say, well, what I need is a better sensor. I need, you know, I need more. And we do. And, you know, you always need better sensors. You always need better, uh, uh, more resilient communication tools. Uh, you always, you always need uh, the ability to know more um, so that you can make decisions more rapidly. But I don't know that we are thinking holistically about that. And I, and we continue to, take resort in the conviction that what we need is more technology, that this is a technological problem. It's always a technological problem. And the, the next thing that industry will produce for us is going to solve the problem. I'm more the human kind of guy. I think it's a training problem. I think it's a cognitive problem. Uh, I think our leaders need to uh, be instilled with greater creativity uh, and they need to be open to making choices. You know, we often call this mission command, the idea that, senior leader gives open-ended, if you will, uh, not vague, but there's flexibility that you're allowed to give instructions and you should give instruction and orders to your subordinates that allow them freedom of action. And I, I think that needs to be reinstilled and cannot be uh, promoted enough. But I think there's a training piece. I think there's just the idea that we have to get out into our training areas as in a collective sense. And we have to practice open field maneuver and looking for ways to build combined arms packages that allow us to punch through a defense and then exploit it in a very traditional classic sense. There's nothing new right to what I'm saying here, but the exploitation phase uh, and the, you know, getting around an enemy in an unexpected time with unexpected capabilities remains the key to uh, owning land and it is not, you know, maneuver warfare, warfare, I don't think is land focused. It's not terrain focused. It's always force focused, really. But the forces live on the land. So the land matters and the topography matters. But to me, it's maneuver. And so the key to who's going to win or what's going to happen next, I think there's, there's two ways, two things that could happen. One, we should be looking at the training areas and we should see, are the Russians training in ways that we're, ha we're talking about here? Are they building the, the means to maneuver. In World War One, in the spring of 1918, that's how the, the stasis was, was broken on the Western Front. The Germans came up with a way to maneuver, right? They were able, they came up with a way to maneuver, to break through with a combination of assault infantry and artillery, concentrated fires. Uh, they had special equipment, they had special, but they had special training and they had a special purpose. And the Western Allies kind of came up with a counter uh, way of doing that as well, which was massed artillery and uh, a little bit more reliant upon combined arms in the sense of cavalry and, and uh, what in, in the newest uh, invention on the battlefield there, of course, the, uh, the tank. And then we made that into a better system in World War II with close air support. But we have to have a system like that because uh, modern war is all about a system. And are the Russians building a system? 
are the Ukrainians building the system? And I think the first side that successfully does that and has enough depth to exploit it is the side that's going to, to win. Which brings me around to, and stop me, Adam, because I'm sure, I mean, once sure. you launch me, I, I go. <laughs> it brings me around to nuclear weapons. So nuclear weapons are, we, you know, we do not want to introduce or reintroduce uh, a new class of weapons into so-called conventional war. But if we have inertia on the battlefield and inability to maneuver, and I want to find a way to break through to upset that to my advantage, then a nuclear weapon, a battlefield employment at the operational echelon is an option that gives me the effects that I am advocating or lacking. There are consequences to that and not off the battlefield consequences. So there are consequences to a state, or we presume and hope there would be consequences to a state that would employ that class of weapon because it has been since 1945, since anyone has used such a device. So there will be shock and outrage, condemnation from international bodies. And that is a factor that the state leader will have to uh, account for in, in his calculations. But separate that for a moment and let's, let's just make the assumption that, and this is a, it's a significant assumption. Let's make the assumption that an adversary head of state is willing to absorb the criticism and the, um, you know, perhaps sanctions and outrage that a global public and, and global international bodies would present to him and throw at him. Let's just make, because I do not think it is an unreasonable assumption. It is certainly uh, provocative, and it is certainly a big step for a state leader. There's risk. But if we isolate the battlefield and say, all right, I've, I've fought this war for one year, two years, three years, however, whatever year we are in. Or there's something that I just want really, really badly. You know, I'm a different part of the world, and there's a piece of topography, or there's a there's a, a, a wayward province, and I just really want that, and I want that no matter what, and I want that 100 years from now, right? I'm thinking long term. Then this, this class of weapons offers me maneuver. That's what, that's, what a, that's what an operational employment of a nuclear device really provides me. Yeah. I, I wonder, do... You know, for for the Russians, I mean, they can they have everything from a a thirty ton nuclear weapon. They've got you know thirty tons, fifty tons, you know, half a kiloton. They've got these ultra low yield weapons that, in many respects, they can say, well, that that wasn't a nuclear weapon. Look how small it was. That that they can, you know, they're very good at disinformation, and so. You know, if you compare that to, you know, a GBU-43 at, what, 11 tons, if you can drop 50 tons, five times the largest conventional weapon, but is still tiny by nuclear standards, I could see how that could be something that, in many respects, addresses the challenge that you've just, and let's say it's an airburst, and you can drop that at, you know, something at 50 tons, your fallout free high to burst is maybe 200 feet 
of 200 feet above ground zero and and you don't have any you know that that weapon is going to consume all the you know all the radiological material in in the detonation so you know if there's no real residue it's not going to get picked up on some of the devices that we use i mean gosh it could be awfully attractive to break the stalemate that we're that we're looking at it is it is what you just described is exactly the appeal of such employment and the risk to us so i i want to be clear i'm not after, i hope this doesn't happen i want deterrence i am not uh i'm not trying to give ideas to the bad guys i'm certainly not advocating that you know the united states army the joint force needs to completely rearm i think that is a separate conversation we need to have so that we have tools that would match an adversary's ability to escalate like this but we are so emotionally distraught over the subject and i've said it before i've been in high level war games in which people start crying when nuclear weapons several, <laughs> when nuclear weapons are introduced in the scenario i mean because there is just this psychological emotional hysteria sometimes literally that erupts and it becomes difficult for us to have you know the an antiseptic conversation about what is potential because the weapons do exist and we just really want to wish it all away uh either it's not my problem it's so morally repugnant that i can't even discussing it uh is wrong right or it's just uh it's somebody else's you know it's somebody else is going to deal with this and figure it out and I think that creates danger and vulnerabilities on our side and to the, pop, the civilian populations that are caught uh, near these battlefields or battlefields to be. And so I believe we have to understand, just like you have described there, using air, there, are, there are a number of create, and I am not the technical expert and I don't pretend to be or want to be, but I know enough to know that there are very creative ways to employ these devices to get strategic effect to, that would then have an operational impact and allow me to do what I just, what I'm using in general terms as maneuver. In other words, get to an objective that satisfies my war aims and puts my enemy right at a significant disadvantage. A device like you're describing that does not have long-term radiological problems, either to the local populace or right to, um, my ability to maneuver through that area. See, it also gives me speed. Speed really matters to maneuver. Speed matters to war. And a nuclear device is is speed, right? It also, <clears throat> in different scenarios, perhaps not in the Ukraine scenarios so much, but there, there are scenarios in the Middle East or especially in the Asia Pacific in which you, if you use a nuclear weapon early, before the joint U.S. and, and coalition, a U.S. and jo- coalition joint force can come to the theater can deploy and do uh, inter-theater, you know, uh, shipping and air flights to get to a place and mass. I mean, everyone has seen uh, the Normandy event. Everyone has seen in World War II. Everyone has seen the Gulf War, right? And so they know that the one way to lose is to wait for the joint and coalition force to arrive, amass, organize ourselves, and then conduct our maneuver campaign. Because we will defeat any armed force in the world given enough time. And so you rob time from the way we want to fight the war by using a nuclear device to seal off a theater, to penetrate, to, to establish a prompt maneuver in proximity, right, to your own forces. There's a whole bunch of things you could do that we simply 
by the physics of time and distance, don't have um, a lot of a lot of recourse. The other piece here is we no longer in the seventies and eighties you could say, all right, we have enough conventional overmatch that even you know that that a nuclear weapon just became foolhardy. It was foolhardy um, at the operational or tactical echelons because our conventional overmatch was so great. You could make this argument, I think, I'd, whether it's absolutely accurate or it's nostalgia is, is a separate conversation. But let's just say in the 70s and 80s, we had such tactical overmatch. We were just better than our adversaries through the 90s. We don't have that anymore. Our, our systems, technical systems, are simply not that much better. They're not in sufficient number uh, in any case. Um, and as if you have seen, our adversaries are creative and they're training hard. The Chinese are conducting large scale, large scale training events that look like rehearsals. Um, and, and we have to account for that. And the Russians are getting better. They're, you know, it, Ukraine has been a meat grinder for them, no doubt. Uh, but they're getting better. And so we have to presume that we are going to fight an adversary uh, much more in a pure sense than we've ever had before. This is not counterterrorism we're talking about. This is large-scale, multi-domain operations. The ANWA Deterrence Center and Nuclecast team joins the Exchange Monitor in inviting you to the 16th Annual Nuclear Deterrence Summit, January 31st through February 2nd at the Weston, Washington, D.C. Go to our website at anwadeter.org to register and receive a 15% discount. We look forward to seeing you there. that we haven't seen play much of a role in Ukraine and that's air power. And so I wonder, you know, when, when you talk about combined arms, close air support and, you know, setting the battlefield for the advance of ground forces, that's been one of the big things that air power's done over the last, you know, five or six decades, but the Ukrainians have none of it. You know, they've got some drones that have sort of been a, problem for the Russians, but apparently now the Russians are, are working through that. And then their drones, uh, you know, I saw an article yesterday about this really inexpensive uh, device that the Russians have created that prevents jamming of their drones. And so, but we're not seeing a lot of fourth and fifth generation fighters dropping bombs. We're not seeing, you know, the lines are not being broken because air power is decimating ground forces what's what's going on with the role of air power that it's sort of like you said it's turned into a fight more akin to the Somme than than to a modern you know war in which the you know the United States has always owned the air uh, what's what's going on here in regards to that that's making it so different yeah i think your observation about air power is uh, accurate and important. Air power is certainly a tool uh, and an advantage that has been decisive for American battlefield victories right since 1944. And um, it's at now it's not always, you know, the Korea uh, War ended up in a, in a stalemate. And, you know, we had robust uh, air kick kind of a hybrid 
uh, part conventional, part unconventional war. So it is not always uh, and is not, I would argue, determinative, uh, but it's certainly a part of how we want to fight jointly. And I would argue that any land force that goes in without air superiority or at least air parity is at much greater risk than a force that that has it. Uh, and its absence in Ukraine by both sides kind of renders, you know, both in the same kind of situation. Um, if one side could develop an air capability um, in the close air, close air sense or the operational battlefield sense, I think that could allow for the maneuver or could could create some opportunities for, for ground maneuver. But the ground maneuver still has to happen and you still have to have the ability to fuse you know, your logistics, your, your uh, tubed and missile artillery, your infantry, your protected firepower and the sense of armor to the degree that it exists, all that together. So all of the things we're talking about in the land have to still happen. The air just provides you an opportunity to do that. Uh, you're not going to win in large-scale combat operations, you know, from the air alone or by the air alone. The... Uh, it's fragile. Though air power is really fragile and it's expensive. You know, why don't the Ukrainians and Russians have it? Because it takes very skilled ground crews and controllers and uh, pilots uh, to, to maintain and operate these, these platforms. And it's, ex it's exquisite, particularly the new ones that all have to be, you know, they have to be main, you know, they have very services and components and whatnot that have to be maintained in certain conditions. So it's, it's, it's wonderful what they can do, but it's also fra it's also fragile, and it's it's just so expensive um, that not most uh, most states can afford it, and certainly nobody has what they would consider to be enough. Um, so you're going to use them a little bit carefully in trying to protect that. So, you know, air power continues to evolve with the technologies and with the, the thinking about multi-domain operations, and it is a tool we want to develop more of. But I do not see it as as decisive. Now, that's I'm talking manned platforms. Uh, and I'm talking operational, you know, strategic, you know, do you want to go deep inside of a state? What would happen in some ways, you know, you make the use of a nuclear weapon, let's say by the Russians, perhaps more likely, let's say that the uh, Ukrainians had, you know, a, uh, an air arm and they could go hundreds of kilometers inside of Russia and strike targets. That is an, that's a pretty potent escalation, you know, so what would the Russians do? What, what would the Russians do? Uh, if they did not have an equal era component. I think that's the calculation that is going through Western minds. Well, let me ask you, do you think, so Tom Spore, former uh, retired Lieutenant General, has, who was at the Heritage Foundation for many years, uh, was an advocate of sort of breaking the Russian army and that this was sort of our opportunity to do it and relatively on the cheap and, uh, is that something, I mean, is it, you know, the big question that's going on, you know, between the Republicans and the House and the Biden administration is just how much are we going to spend? And there's a disagreement there. And and so I, I guess my question for you is, is, is it valuable to keep uh, investing beyond the sort of the morality of the Ukrainian support for Ukraine from a purely, you know, national interest for the United States is continuing to support Ukraine to try to cause destruction of the, the Russian army. Is that a good investment? Can we achieve our objectives or is this, you know, something else? 
you know, I'm not, I'm not partisan in either way. And I'm, I'm always, um, I'm always disappointed in army generals who, who become partisan. So I'm going to avoid, uh, any reference to any particular, uh, administration or, or, uh, party perspectives. And I'll just try and give my, my thoughts here in a straight up way, which is, um, I think the challenge, what we ought to do is def- the morale, the moral case is clear. Ukrainians uh, have every moral right to defend their country um, with the means at their disposal. And, and they have, they're on the right side of this conflict. But I'm a, I'm more of a real politic interest kind of guy. And so from, so the morality matters, but the morality never matters um, limitlessly. <laughs> Uh, because resources are not limitless. And so we should, I believe, define the ends. For us, especially now the Ukrainians have, you know, the Ukrainians uh, have given up tremendous um, blood here. And it's very difficult for them as a combatant to accept anything other than, you know, unconditional surrender and the full restoration of their territory back, you know, as it was defined in the 1990s. Um, you know, that's kind of where they've staked their public position. And that is for the Ukrainians uh, to determine, and that is a diplomatic issue for us behind the scenes to work with the Ukrainians as to whether that is feasible, practical, and uh, achievable. But for the United States and for the American public, and for the question you're asking about, you know, how much is enough or, or, or is it too little, I think there needs to be an articulation of the ends for the United States. Um, and I think there needs to be greater partnership with our NATO um, allies. Um, this, I mean, there should be, the closer you are to the fight, uh, you ought to have a little bit more invested in the game. And I don't think that, we, again, we live in an era in which um, the United States is going to be able to afford um, to, to give, donate. Uh, it's not just money, but it's munitions. And it's, it's um, you know, we're sending a lot of forces to Europe on a rotational basis. And there's wear and tear on those families and those formations. Uh, and so it, there is a real aspect of this where I think an ends determination is the is the is needed in 24 if we're if we are going to be locked into this um, for some period of time if we think maneuver is going to be restored if we think there is some sort of initiative that's going to change the battlefield situation uh, we need to think about that as well because again World War One kind of looked the same for from 1914 all the way until three, four years. And then suddenly, boom, it was by the fall of 18, it was over with. It happens quickly. All right. And World War II is going on and on and on. And then we land in 44 and in the spring of 45, you know, it's wrapping up. So, so these wars can be locked in for a while and then it rapidly changes. And again, knowing what you want and will accept at militarily at the end is really, really important. And I don't know, at least publicly, I can say I have not seen that conversation. And I think that's what people, I think if people know what we're willing to do and what we want to do, then that becomes an easier calculation for people to assess. Now, we're at that time in the show where I bring up Bob, and as I rub my magic lamp and Bob pops out, of course, he grants three wishes that are related to the topic of discussion. So as as Bob grants you wish number one related to our Ukraine discussion, what is wish number one? Wish number one is, in fact, uh, to understand the, the use of a nuclear 
as a culture, as a military culture inside the Army and the Joint Force to understand that the employment of a nuclear weapon is simply another condition of large-scale combat operations. And it deserves the same attention, evaluation, and preparation as other conditions that we think may appear on the future battlefield. So it is, and that is really the hardest step. Once, once we acknowledge that weapons, these class of weapons exist, therefore it is potential, their potential use by an adversary is a problem. Once we admit that we have the problem, then we can work on the problem. And that is, um, that is, that is my first wish. And that wish almost subsumes my other two wishes, but I'll go ahead and uh, I'll give you two more ancillary wishes since the genie has determined that I must do so. Uh, I think the second wish would be a the end's determination that we just talked about in, in terms of a military, global military strategy by the joint force and prioritization of theaters. Um, I understand the reasons that we want to, and this gets into the, is the, is the joint force capable of fighting two regional wars at the same time, or we win, hold, win, or what? And I, we don't need to revisit those conversations, but we do need to, I believe, um, prioritize training exercises, um, environmental preparations, for instance, the Arctic. Right. Uh, how much in, in cold, I mean, cold weather in Ukraine is a factor. Cold, cold weather in northern Korea is a factor. Cold weather along yeah, India, China borders. I mean, there's lots of places, right, where we have extreme uh, elevations and extreme cold weather uh, challenges. And so we got a, we've got a division in Alaska, the 11th Airborne Division, for instance. Well, how much Arctic cold weather specific training and equipping do they require? We have not as an army determined that, nor has the joint force determined that. And so, and, and you, you know, you can make the argument, what about jungle or what about desert as well? But cold is something that will kill you, for instance, right away. And so the army needs to, is a broader, part of a broader effort here. What environments matter to the army, since I'm an army guy, and how much preparation in terms of resourcing, training, and equipping do I want to put into these different environments? Now, you may think that's a small thing, but having a force that can go into different environments, uh, pretty decisive, and, and succeed and operate. I mean, we saw that in 1942 uh, in the Pacific, right, where we just had all sorts of problems uh, at Guadalcanal and, and in New Guinea and whatnot because we weren't ready for jungle uh, operations. So... The Army needs to do more to think about the environments in which they're going to train. And that's a specific thing, but that, and that may be a little bit off, off course from uh, our general topics. But, but knowing the environments, whether it's a nuclear environment or it's a geographic environment, I think is the second one. Okay. Can I – you have time for yeah. a third? Oh, no, no. you got time. We, the, Bob, uh, Bob the genie is a vengeful genie. He wants three okay. wishes. All right. Well, Bob's, all right, well, Bob's got his handful here. Um, third wish. I want us, let me go back to a cultural thing. I want the army officer corps and the joint force to be really creative. I want us to take the shackles off of our minds and think uh, as aggressively about what could be as our adversaries do. So October 7th, the tragedy that happened by Hamas in Israel. 
look at how that caught us by surprise. And that was not a high tech. <laughs> that was not, that was the lowest of tech attacks, right? Bulldozers, men on my, motorcycles, small arm, automatic fire. And look at the horror that it unleashed and inflicted. But there is a creativity inside that organization, that terrorist organization, that I don't know that we, the U.S. Army and U.S. Joint Force, always exhibit the same creativity. Because we're very compliant to existing policy. We're very, we recognize norms. Uh, we, you know, we're always, and I'm not, I'm not advocating, again, that we break uh, so-called rules of war and, and violate ethics and all that. But we need, to, we need to think creatively like our adversaries do. We just need to appreciate that our adversaries are going to take risks and they're going to violate right and wrong in ways that we are not willing to. And we just need to be ready for that. And we need to think uh, expansively about how, in the face of those kinds of threats, how would we operate? How would we maneuver? How would we win at the tactical and operational level? Which is our job as Army officers. Army officers, you know, that's what we do, right? Deliver land power as a part of the joint force for the nation. So are we as creative as we need to be in the face of highly original thinking adversaries? And that could be from what you saw Hamas do and terrorist organizations do, ISIS over the years to nuclear weapons um, because our adversaries are going to look at all the tools because they're going to assess risk very differently than we do. And we're on, you know, we run, if you will, uh, we built the international system of economic and trade and values. So we're a bit risk averse as because we want to preserve and our adversaries want to tear down and destroy and then recreate in their own image. And so I don't know that intellectually, psychologically, we are as expansive as we need to be. So those are my three yeah. wishes. Well, those are all three good wishes. I, you know, uh, we'll have to have a, you know, wait a, a little while and then come back and we'll have a, another podcast. Cause this idea of creativity is one that, you know, I've written a handful of articles in different journals about this very question of creativity amongst the officer corps, because I don't see it. And I actually think we're going in the wrong direction. And so, but that's, that's a sort of a discussion that deserves itself. So we'll have to come back and talk about that. But uh, thanks for uh, joining us on to talk about Ukraine. It was an interesting discussion. And I think uh, a lot of our listeners are going to, you know, you brought up some points that I hadn't thought about. And I think they're going to, you know, go back and think about it, you know, because, uh, you know, we're, we're the, a great podcast for, you know, the drive from, uh, from home to the office, especially if you're in DC and, uh, you know, it's the sort of the right fit for the time. And so as they're working throughout the day, they're going to be thinking about what, what we were just talking about here. So thanks for bringing some, some great points about Ukraine to Nuclecast. Thanks, Adam. It's a privilege uh, to be here and I, I, I enjoy these conversations very much. So thank you. And thanks to you, the listeners for joining us on this episode and we'll see you next time. Well, another great discussion with General Garricky. Uh, you know, I, I had asked him to come back to Nuclecast because I really enjoyed our first discussion. And so seeing what he thinks about the Ukraine, about Ukraine and then just the war and, you know, where the Russians are and how this all plays out, uh, it was really interesting. So I found it insightful. You know, I, I tend to find 
him to be a very insightful person. So hopefully you did as well. But of course. This has been a production of the Anwa Deterrence Center, a 501c3 that seeks to educate key decision makers, stakeholders, and the public to ensure a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrent. Our executive producer is Kimberly Chanerton, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Crumpall. Help us grow our followers by sharing it and follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at NuclearCast.